Thank you, Pastor Maggie, for sharing that wonderful experience with us. And, and as she said, uh, we'll be playing an extended cut of that video uh, tomorrow on our social media. And so be sure to check that out. Uh, this year looks so different for our families and for folks with children at home. I know as we're preparing for back to school season, so much is taking place at home that we're not used to. And that includes the, the journey through faith. We're used to our kids engaging in, you know, intentional learning in, th in Sunday school and things that we're unable to do right now. And I'm so grateful that Pastors Maggie and Eliana have been so faithful in equipping and resourcing our families through primarily this weekly newsletter that is sent out. And if you're not receiving that newsletter or if you're not receiving our own church's weekly newsletter, um, if you've been coming to, to uh, Arapahoe UMC for a while now, um, I want you to go ahead and email Pastor Maggie directly, maggie at arapahoumc.org. And if you're relatively new to our community and you'd like to be connected to the life of this church, go to arapahoumc.org slash new, arapahoumc.org slash new. And there you can sign up for our weekly church e-blast. You can also let us know that you've got kids at home and Pastor Maggie will make sure you get signed up for our kids newsletter. We are continuing here at Arapahoe in our sermon series called Unmasked where we are looking at those things that our culture tries to cover up long before the pandemic was around, and yet this season is revealing them, uncovering them, and our faith is offering us a hopeful and faithful path forward that we might not find elsewhere. We've talked about grief. We've talked about self-care. This week, to get to our topic, I want to tell you about junior high band. If you were a junior high band member, uh, go ahead and, and, uh, and, well, we don't have a live chat this morning because I know that all of us are watching this after the fact. So um, I guess just think back, fond memories of junior high band or high school band. I was in, uh, a percussionist all the way through junior high and high school. I don't miss a lot from junior high and high school, but I do miss that experience of uh, being in the band with my friends. And I remember distinctly this one, uh, this one time in seventh grade. It was the first time we'd gathered together the whole symphonic, the wind symphony, uh, together in the same room. And we were about to prepare for our Christmas concert. Parents, we all know the joy that is a seventh grade Christmas concert. And um, it was the first time we were going to hear the whole band playing together for the very first time. And I remember the, the music instructor, our music director, he was uh, trying to get control of the room. And, and so he tapped his, I don't know what you call it, a, a, a baton or a wand. I like to pretend I went to Hogwarts. He tapped his wand against uh, the music stand and he said, I've got one question for us before we begin. Does anybody know what the most important note is? What's the most important note that we play? Sort of this silence came over a room as all of us began to think, most of us scared to offer a response, but one confident uh, boy raised his hand and the music teacher called on him, the band teacher called on him and he said, um, it's the first note, the first note of the song. All of us thought that was a pretty good answer. A, a wry smile came across our band director's face. It's as though he'd heard this answer to this question before. Maybe he had had this conversation in years past. He said, that's a good answer. It's, it's true that the first note that we play is an important one, but it's not the most important note. Somebody else? He looked around the room saw the gears turning, and this time several hands went up, and he, he called on a young woman, and, and she said, it's the last note, that, that triumphant last note is the most important note that we play, and, and again, he said, that's a great answer, and yes, that last note is important, but it's not the most important note, and then he looked around the room again, and a 
silence fell over us as none of us at that point were confident in offering up an answer. And what felt like must have been an hour was probably about 10 seconds. And he said, anybody else? And then he said, the most important note that you'll ever play is the rest note. The rest note. Now maybe you don't have a music background. The rest note is the note in sheet music that says don't play anything. It's the note that you don't play. And in a wind symphony, especially a seventh grade wind symphony, the note you don't play is the most important note because everybody knows when you mess that one up, as I learned in my own time. The rest note is the most important note that we play. That was true in seventh grade band, and I believe that it's true today. In fact, I've found that teaching moment to only be more important in my own life as I've gotten older. The rest note. You know, we live in a culture that is increasingly noisy. I love it. There's a Rob Bell video on of silence. And he talks about uh, how there's a, a nature audio engineer whose job it is to record natural sounds. And like back in the 60s, it, it only took him like an hour to get a minute's worth of natural audio, no man-made uh, noises in it. And, and then 40 years later, it took him thousands and thousands of hours to get purely natural sounds for just one minute stitched together. We live in an increasingly noisy world. And it, and it caused this question to bubble up within me. In a culture, constant noise. Noise of the news, noise of social media, noise of our email inbox that we're terrified to look at every morning as we wake up, right? In, an, in a culture of constant noise, what does God provide through rest? To help us in our journey today, we're going to be looking at the story of Elijah found in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, this is a book that I'm sure some of us are less familiar with than others, um, but I want to give us a little bit of background before we dig right in. In chapter 18, Elijah, he's this great prophet, right? He, he's he's uh, extremely faithful to God, and God uses Elijah to accomplish a great many things. And in chapter 18, there's this really great big battle where, where Elijah faces off against these prophets of Baal. And Baal was a, a pagan god that was worshipped by many of the surrounding kingdoms. And, and I liked this battle especially because it involved God sending a pillar of fire down on some sacrificial cows. And I just love the smell of beef cooking. Anybody else? Um, so uh, Elijah is... If and God proves victorious in this face-off. And Elijah uh, puts to the sword, this is the Old Testament, different moral code back then, puts to the sword all of the prophets of Baal. Well, this news makes its way back to Jezebel, who is the princess of the kingdom that these prophets called home. And she doesn't take kindly to this news. And that's where we pick up in chapter 19, and it says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I, not, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What she's saying is, I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid. He got up. And fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came out and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. 
Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake, or a flatbread, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We'll stop there for now. So Elijah is fleeing for his life. Right? This, this, this epic battle that he proves victorious, it only leads him into further crisis as Jezebel threatens his life and promises to so he ends up on this sort of survival journey into the wilderness. When he flees into the wilderness, he's, he's met by this messenger of God, an angel, who provides him the basic food necessary for him to continue to wander. And the language here is a little unclear as to whether or not these two meals of flatbread and water provide him all the sustenance he needs for those 40 days and 40 nights, or if he received a daily offering of this flatbread and water throughout that journey. I kind of prefer the latter interpretation there. Because it, it reminds me of that prayer that we heard earlier from Pastor Maggie, the Lord's Prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread. You know, it's not this miraculous way out. God doesn't send Elijah a, a mystical eagle to carry him off to some safe place. God doesn't provide this enormous Thanksgiving feast, but instead a, a meager, simple meal of flatbread and water to continue his struggle for survival. So often, I, I want my rest to be singular and monumental and then to move on with my life. And, and yet, I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 1 when God institutes the Sabbath as a whole day of every week. Here, the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, reserves an entire day of the week to just rest. It seems unnecessary for someone like God, and yet it's so important that it's stated in the opening of our Bible, this rest, this routine, this rhythm, this regular cycle of resting. You know, I, I was reminded this week as I looked at the story of Elijah that we treat rest like it's the solution to moments of crisis, but God designed regular rest as part of the rhythm of life, as part of the rhythm of life. Notice that Elijah reaches his breaking point. Have you ever felt like Elijah? Lord, just end me. I don't know where to go from here. He cries out, God, just kill me. I can't handle all of this. Have you ever been at your breaking point before? I think that's where a lack of rest leads us. I don't know that Elijah was great at resting until this moment. Because we weren't designed to run on empty. The God who created us designed us to be creatures at rest. And too often we say, I can't afford to rest. I'm, I'm thinking especially of parents like me who have small kids at home, and you're saying, Scott, I can't devote a whole day to Sabbath. I get that. Maybe it's a day where you put too many movies on the TV and you don't feel bad about it. Maybe it's an afternoon. Maybe it's just that hour when you get everyone asleep at night and rather than jumping to binge watching whatever's next on your Netflix queue, I do that all the time, maybe we reserve some holy divine time of rest to be with God. I wonder if we would say rather than I can't afford to rest, I can't afford not to rest as we look where not resting can lead us. The first thing that Elijah teaches me about God's provision is that through rest, God provides fuel in our struggling.
through rest, God provides fuel in our struggling. Elijah's story continues in verse 9 of chapter 19. At that place in the Mount Horeb, that's also Mount Sinai. It's the same place, just a different name. Same place where Moses went up and spent 40 days and 40 nights with God. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it's a parallel. Yes, it's intentional. At that place, he came to a cave, it says, and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And then God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Let's stop there for a moment. The second thing that Elijah teaches me this week is that through rest, God provides clarity in our confusion. Through rest, God provides clarity in our confusion. God asks Elijah this What appears to be maybe a simple question, but it's not simple. Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? It's this piercing question of God. And notice that Elijah does what so many of us do all the time. Elijah looks for the answers in these environmental circumstances. We look for our environments and our circumstances to dictate to us what that answer should be. And so often it's a really poor answer that we're given. He looks to God to speak through this chaos around him, the wind, the fire, the earthquake. And he's not wrong to do so. These are signs that God uses to show God's presence earlier in the Old Testament. Elijah is a good prophet. He knows how God speaks, and yet that's not how God's choosing to speak to Elijah this time. In my own life, I've experienced God in the fire and the wind and the earthquake. It's those moments where I feel like God smacks me upside the head. That only happens a handful of times in my life, but I've noticed that God maybe prefers to speak in a simpler way, quieter way, a way that draws us in, the sound of sheer silence. See, to be able to hear that, Elijah has to tune out all of this chaos and confusion around him. He has to focus clearly on this sound of sheer silence. You know, I find it interesting that Elijah is this, this great prophet And yet, our scripture is so good about showing uh, the, the great leaders in our Bible to be perfectly imperfect, to be so human. You know, Elijah's walked with God for decades. He's, he's not a young man. He's in the last stages of his life. He's witnessed God perform miracle after miracle. He has himself been at the heart of so much of God's work. And yet, when, whenever he... Um, 
in this moment, whenever he's looking for God to speak, he doesn't think to look for those quiet, still moments. He doesn't think that maybe this intentional time away is exactly what he needs. No, he's looking for God to continue to speak through chaos and crisis. And instead, God invites him to refocus and recenter his life on the voice of God that can so easily be missed if we simply spend our lives running from one crisis to the next. Have you been in a season of life where you feel like you're running from one crisis to the next? When we allow ourselves to be driven and directed by the chaos and confusion of our lives, we can very easily end up like Elijah, throwing our hands up in the air out of frustration and asking for it all to end. How much better, I wonder, could my life be? Could your life be? If we were to spend intentional time in our lives to stop, listen, and consider how God's voice might be leading us in ways that are better, healthier, holier than the winds and quakes and fires in our lives will lead us. Elijah's story is not done. After he wraps up his face, it says this, Elijah went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him, the sound of sheer silence, remember, that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. It's the same answer as before. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So again, God asks Elijah this question this time drawing Elisha even closer, hoping, praying, maybe something has gotten through to him in this time of rest. Elisha, why are you here? And Elisha proves to be perfectly imperfect. He offers the same broken response. He's stuck in a loop. He can't see a path forward for himself. In fact, he can't see a path forward for the world around him. Everything is ending because he doesn't know what the future looks like. And so then God tells Elijah to go and anoint three important people. And maybe you're wondering, why does this matter? Well, the two kings are the kings over the kingdoms that have been at the center of Elijah's conflict in this story. And the third person is the next great prophet, Elijah's own successor, Elisha, because the Old Testament is annoying and has people with similar names. Have you noticed how self-centered Elijah's story and speaking has been in this chapter? He doesn't speak much, but when he does, he uses the phrases, I, me, or my, ten times. Ten times. I'm the only one. Right? He literally ends his response to God with, I'm the only one left. And so God, I think, hears this and tries to point Elijah's 
something different, something better. Elijah can sense that his end is coming, but he can't see anything else. So God points his attention in a new direction. Those 7,000 that are remaining in Israel, remember Elijah says he's the only one, right? God says there are 7,000 faithful in Israel still. That's an important number. The number seven in the Jewish tradition is a number that is holy, and it means something is complete or whole. And the number 1,000 is a way of saying symbolically uh, like a whole, a whole lot, like, like, like whatever you're thinking, more than that, right? So 7,000 is like God saying there is a whole lot of faithful people still in Israel. Elijah, you're not the only one. To borrow the music metaphor that we began with, Elijah has been so obsessed with being the soloist that he's forgotten that there's a whole other orchestra around him. And the conductor is tapping his wand, trying to get his attention. Elijah had been so used to being God's prophet that when that role was coming to an end, he was stuck. I was reminded by Elijah this week that through rest, God provides purpose in our disarray. God provides rest, or through rest, God provides purpose in our disarray. You know, we've talked about the problem of running on empty. We've talked about the problem of being driven and directed by chaos and confusion, but the end run of those things is ultimately living without a clear sense of purpose that emerges from a relationship with the one who made you. Elijah could have spent the last of his days fighting with Jezebel or more prophets of Baal. That's what he had known. It's what he had been pretty effective with in his life. But that's not what God had in mind. God wanted Elijah to shift his energy to something radically different, equipping the next generation, preparing a way for life without him as great prophet. This is a shift that Elijah could not have made on his own. If it had been up to Elijah, he never could have made this shift. It certainly would not have emerged out of the chaos and confusion that sent him into the wilderness to begin with. I don't know about you, but maybe you're like Elijah and some of your purpose has been stripped away these last few months. Maybe you're wondering who you are or why you're here. Perhaps God is preparing a shift in your own life. An answer to that whispered question, why? One that won't come from winds and quakes and fires. An answer that's not built upon looking back into the past, but forward into the future. My friends, this week Elijah teaches me and teaches us that if you feel like you're running on empty, if you feel like everything is chaos and confusion, if you feel like you're missing that greater purpose, maybe you've forgotten how to play the most important note. Elijah's story is not much longer. There's only a few chapters remaining. This comes to the near, near to the end of his life, but I imagine if Elijah were standing here before us today and offering his testimony, he would say his life was better because of the rest that he found in God on Mount Horeb. May Elijah guide us in that same path in finding God through the holy art of rest. Amen.